Okay, well here we are back. Uh, how you doing there, Big Ray? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm pretty good, man. I'm, uh, you know, feeling like uh, it's uh, a time to remember. That's for sure. And you know what? <laughs> Just today, you mean, or uh, the big picture? The big picture, the collective experience we're all going through here. You know, it's really something else, and uh, I'm excited to have this uh, time machine back to 1974. I'll tell you that much. Oh, absolutely. You know, Charles Bronson movies, the attitudes people had at that time are just fascinating. We're going through hard times right now. So I think it's it's escapist in some ways to look back at how things were. But I think it's also you can get a lot from from seeing how people approach uh, living their lives and portraying lives on film from that period. And there's no better example in my mind of 1974 than Mr. Majestic. Yeah, oh, yeah. So that's today, 1974. It's a Charles Bronson vehicle. And uh, Big Ray, are you as excited about this as I am? Yeah. You look pumped. Well, it's hard not to. Uh, about 20 minutes into any Bronson movie, you usually get the itching itch to just like grab whatever weights you have handy, soup cans, something like that. Yeah. You either start feeling like ready to work out or you start feeling bad about yourself. I think this is a good, what you were just saying though, I think this is a great example. Like one of the reasons I wanted to get into this podcast was because you know, I just find myself pulled to all these older movies as it is, you know, just try to find something new that's any good. Uh, and you're pretty hard pressed uh, these days. And so I found myself going back to all the, you know, the stuff I was, I was loving 20 years ago, which was already old at the time. And in doing that, just realizing how, you know, Bronson's films stand head and shoulders above even so much of that other stuff from the same time. Yeah, it's true. And I think this film in particular is a standout for this uh, era of his filmography. So yeah, just quickly, Mr. Majestic, 1974, it's directed by Robert Fleischer. So he's someone who at that time had directed, you know, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, uh, the war movie Tora Tora Tora. He did Soylent Green, which I know is a favorite of yours. Nice. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Conan the Destroyer later in the 80s and Red Sonja, which I think is another another favorite. Yes. This one was produced by the Mirsch Corporation, who also uh, had done The Great Escape and The Magnificent Seven. So they had a history with Bronson. You know, this, this is a really interesting movie because it was released only about two weeks, maybe even less, before Death Wish. And it kind of was eclipsed by Death Wish in, in a lot of ways. So, you know, Bronson had come back from his big triumph in Europe. So from 68 to 72, he did a lot of films in Europe. And then from 72 to this movie in 74, he had a number of really strong Hollywood productions that did fairly well. So like Chato's Land, The Mechanic, The Stone Killer. Uh, and then Death Wish, he's, he's standing on the precipice here about to become one of the biggest movie stars in the world. And Majestic was, was well received, but it was definitely overshadowed by the you know, the controversy and, um, and the success of the Death Wish movie. So, you know, he's about 52 years old when this movie was made and he looks fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I tried to look up the, uh, how much this movie cost and how much it's made, but apparently IMDB has been monetizing that information. So I couldn't, uh, I couldn't gather that information without actually paying a significant uh, monthly fee, which I, I'm hesitant to pay uh, and, and somewhat uh, reticent about the idea of having to. So, yeah, well, forget that idea. I mean, you should be able to find that in a book somewhere, but yeah, I can't, I can't go to a library right now. You know, we're on lockdown. So what can I say? <laughs> Just uh, look it up yourself when this whole, uh, this whole shroud lifts, folks. Yeah, I need to find out how much Mr. Majestic made. <laughs> Honey, I'm going to the library. 
Yeah. It's got to be in an encyclopedia which, somewhere. Which book? Which book are you looking for? Go to the stacks. Do you remember how we? Do you remember how we used to go into the university library? Yeah, the and stacks. They go into the stacks, and they had these movie reference books that we would pour over all the time and they were reference books so you couldn't even take them out but i remember having like a spare at university and just going into like they'd have a book on uh black exploitation movies yeah just get super high and <laughs> go read about westerns <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah or or books of people i remember like al pacino uh trying to find every like everything he had ever been in. And then at that time you're trying to rent it on VHS and there was all kinds of, you couldn't find like scarecrow somewhere. No, you could never find like panic and needle park or anything like that. Yeah. No. Can you imagine 1974 though? Like if you were already a Bronson fan, can you imagine Mr. Majestic in the theaters? And then a couple weeks later, death wish in the theaters, it would have been an, an embarrassment of riches. I don't know, man. I think I'd be uh, going multiple times. Like there's a few movies in my life. I definitely went back to several times, you know, these would definitely be among those. If I had been a young person at this period, I was alive then, but just barely. Oh, bitch. <laughs> just barely alive. Yeah. Just, Didn't have a yeah. lot of autonomy yet. So no, no. <laughs> so we're going to dive into the film in 60 seconds here and, and, uh, and Ray's going to do the honors. So in case you haven't watched the movie, these are all kind of the most important details, like the biggest plot twists, the main characters and kind of what happens in the movie. So we're going to give you 60 seconds. Sometimes it takes a little longer, but, uh, if it does, you'll feel embarrassed. So try not to go over 60. Yeah, no, I don't want to feel embarrassed. Uh, and I've, I've done a couple run throughs of this. Sometimes I'm a second over. Sometimes I sneak it in. We're going to see how I got some coffee in me. We're going to see how it goes. We're going to time it. Here we go. On the count of three, uh, Mr. Majestic in 60 seconds. One, two, here we go. Colorado farmer Vincent Majestic needs a team of men experienced in slipping melons. While his crew's getting on the bus, Vince runs into a situation at the gas station bathroom and ends up meeting Nancy Chavez, a beautiful union organizer. When Vince and Nancy get back to the farm, however, they're greeted by Bobby Copas, local tough and wannabe shakedown artist. Vince rejects Copas's offer of cheaper labor with a shotgun butt to the nuts and ends himself back up in jail. There he finds himself on the bad side of Frank Renda, mafia hitman. Renda's associates uh, ambush the transport bus they're on, killing a whole mess of cops for failing to free Renda before Vince takes off with Frank. As a prisoner, he hopes to trade for his freedom in time to get his melons picked. Frank gives Majestic the slip, and the local police chief decides to use Vince as bait to get the vengeful Renda back in custody. Frank shows up looking for Vince, but finds only uh, workers to strong arm and melons to destroy. Vince and Nancy discover the carnage, and Vince has had about enough. He goes on the offensive, and after an incredible truck chase, Vince takes on Renda in his hideaway cabin, culminating in a leaping shotgun blast to the chest. Whoa, that was pretty damn good, man. That's I think it was exactly one minute. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Very good. Very good, Ray. There was a lot of action, a lot of characters to cover there, and you, and you nailed it. A lot happens in this movie. It's sort of deceptive. At times, it feels like it doesn't have a, a massive plot to it. It just keeps moving, this movie. It chugs along. It does have a really strange kind of pacing to it. I, yeah, I find this movie really charming. You know, it's one of those films that action-wise, it's so good. But then there's just this really cool undertone in it that's very relaxed and, uh, and a lot of fun. Like, this is a really fun movie. I don't want to give away too much of my, my rating on this one, but it's, it's pretty high. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. I think people know that from the outset with this one. I just came by to tell you something. Maybe you know it already. I want to make sure. I'm going to kill you. 
Hey, there's a couple cops over there. Yeah. Otherwise, you might be dead already. When is this big event going to take place? It's a difference. Tomorrow, next week, you can hide in the basement at our police station. But I'm going to get you, my baby. Seems like there's no use trying to get on your good side. But the details that it's all hung on are so strange. Like I'm imagining, you know, Elmore Leonard writes it. He's sitting down. And if you kind of slow down some of those plot points I just went through and think about them, it's like, how did he come up with that? Like, I'm going to have a melon farmer who punches this guy and lands himself in jail. And then while in jail, he's going to upset this mafia hitman. And then he's going to have to hold the hitman hostage in order to try to get in to get his melon crop. Like it doesn't make, there's nothing like it. There's no other movie where where the plot is remotely similar that I can think of. As you're talking, I was thinking the one thread that keeps it from descending into ridiculousness is Bronson's confidence. Everything that happens to him, he just rolls with it and comes out the other side, generally unscathed or, you know, completely in control So I think that's kind of, that's my theory as to what is the glue that holds this movie together and keeps it from being kind of ridiculous. And that makes me think a bit more about his character in general. In this movie, more than others that I've seen him in, he's got a sense of humor, like the character Vince Majestic, he's got a bit of a, he's got a bit of wit. So he's, he's often messing with other people or he's He's a bit of a jerk to people. Yeah. Like in a funny way. Well, he doesn't suffer fools, that's for sure. No, no. I just think that that's not something you see in every Charles Bronson movie. A twinkle in his eye. He's got a lot of one-liners in this movie. The very best example of it, I think, for me, like the funniest moment in the movie is when he's in prison and he's or he's yeah. in a holding cell having some lunch and he asks Renda, he doesn't know who he is, he asks yeah. Renda for his food. Renda yeah. throws it on the floor. Hey, buddy, you going to eat that sausage? You ain't gonna eat it, nobody is, huh? Help yourself. I guess not. Hey, don't you know who that is? He's a TV star. Man, that's Frank Rinder. Yeah, I saw him play the accordion on TV. I said Frank Rinder. He's a hitman. You know what I'm saying? He shoots people with a gun. And you ask him, is he going to eat his sausage, 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 Yeah. Sausage, yeah, he's often poking fun at people and just giving them little digs all throughout. He never takes the bad guys seriously either, which is pretty, it's sort of unique because, I mean, you see him do that in other movies, but in this, it's so blatant. Like, he just never once takes takes uh, Bobby Cope as serious. He doesn't take Renda seriously. No. He's constantly in control of all those situations. And... You know, he comes out the victor, obviously, every single time, too, which is pretty great. I've seen this movie another number of times, and I was thinking about it as I watched very consciously this time. Like, why is he so nonchalant about having a mafia hitman after him? Like, even when the police chief is telling him, like, we won't be able to protect you or you'll be on your own or whatever. There's no indication that he cares at all. 
is it because he is so capable that he knows like i'm gonna get back pick my melons if this guy ever shows up i'll just take him out like like is he just so confident is that what it is yeah you know he's just a working class hero like he's this guy who um who's always in control he's never worried about anything except for the task at hand like he's trying to get his business taken care of he's trying to get his melon crop in and nothing else really matters much to him. He he barely has time even even for Nancy Chavez. Like he makes a bit of time for her, yeah. but only in the context of getting the work done. You say, yeah, like he's a working class hero. And that reminds me, have, have you ever, have you watched the trailer? It name checks a couple of movies that were big at the time. It's, it says like, you've seen Walking Tall and you've seen, and there's another one, I forget what it is. But that idea of like the lone, every man with a shotgun, a uh, small town, whether it's corrupt mayor or, you know, like a developer or what, you know, whatever all those movies are probably about. Like the, yeah, the trailer firmly places that in it. There's a line in it. I don't know if we were really savvy, maybe we could fly it in to the podcast, but it says something like he's a hero for all of us or something. It's something like that. Last year, Billy Jack became one of the most popular pictures of our time. Walking Tall was applauded by audiences across the nation. Now, Charles Bronson is Mr. Majestic in a movie that touches the hero in all of us. Vincent Majestic was an ordinary man. He wanted to work his farm, live his life, mind his business. Hey, didn't somebody say something about a cold beer after work? They really try to sell him uh, as that's what he is. Like we we could be mr majestic right like we're gonna be able to identify with this guy or wish we were him yeah and i think that's sort of the marketing that he had going for him for quite a quite a lot of his career even you know, his upbringing in the coal mines the fact he was a coal miner the fact he worked he was a gunner in the in the war in world war ii there's a lot of working class rhetoric well it'd be hard to push him in any other way like he looks like a hard man right like he doesn't you couldn't dress him up uh, in in finery, and he presented himself as some sort of like uh, Cary Grant-ish sort of uh, individual. Like I don't know if it would have worked. That's interesting because you know I, I think in some cases, if you if you do read about his life, by this point he he saw himself as a as a solid actor. He felt he could do roles that stretched his legs more than he got the chance to. So I mean, even like Saint Ives or uh, the White Buffalo, I think is another one where he he plays a character who might be, I think it's you know a hundred years previous, so he he could play someone who's might be considered upper class at that time. Yeah, I think you're right though. Like the typecast was for a good reason, and he played this role so well, and he played it again and again. And there are only just subtle differences between each of the films, but. I'll ask you this, like his entrance is a pretty unique one. And I, you know, we referenced this in our intro to the podcast. This is a film with an entrance that's pretty, pretty good standout. So take us through it. You know, if there were ever like a signature moment almost where you had to craft a visual that really illustrated what's Bronson all about, it'd probably be a door that says man and he walks out of it all clad in denim. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't think you're going to beat that. Yeah. He looks great. He's wearing like a, a, a denim shirt and he's got brown cords and he's got this kind of one of those Andy cap hats, you know? And one thing that I, yeah. I really liked about this opening is he does something that I've not seen him do. I don't think in any other movie and that's, he tosses his hair back. 
So he, he, he you could see him walk past yeah. his truck. He tosses his hair back because it's pretty long yeah. and he sticks, yeah. sticks it under his hat, you know, and then he goes up and, and uh, he gets into the face of the gas pump jockey who, who says, uh, you know, you only want three bucks worth of gas. And, and Bronson never looks him in the eye and just kind of turns his back and says, that's right. And if you're not too busy, you can wipe the bugs off my windshield. <laughs> yeah <laughs> so dismissive like yeah so dismissive and the guy and that guy is revealed later um or you can debate why he does what he does but he's like we don't like the gas jockey guy so we don't feel bad for him but at the same time at that point he hadn't done anything to bronson no he's just sort of judging him for only getting three bucks worth of gas yeah yeah but bronson's not going to even take that because he doesn't take anything from anybody and one of the things about that whole opening sequence that I really like too is is just the style. Like, so he's wearing clothes that are pretty seventies, uh, but they're great. Like, he looks he looks fantastic. He's in phenomenal shape. You know, he's uh, always been a physical specimen. And I, I I think you know you and I have have talked about this. Like, he looks great, and he kind of looks the same age from nineteen sixty five until nineteen ninety. You know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and this is squarely in the middle. So you just, you really don't know how old he might be, but he looks yeah. fabulous. Bronson looks the same age for 30 years, basically. But how old, how old would you say he looks for those 30 years? Like 50. He, does he look 50? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I think he looks about 50. You know? Yeah, you're probably right. So a big question I have for you is, is his facial hair. And, and how would you describe this, this situation? Well, I can I can see it. Our listeners can't see it, but I'm looking at the cover of the novelization, so I have a really good picture of his facial hair right here. And it is its signature 70s Bronson. Like this is this is his calling card. It's it's wide in like a Fu Manchu. It just extends really far out and then stops. Uh, and it's not incredibly thick. Like his mustache was never, like it didn't grow in that thick. So right. it's this, it's big and kind of wispy at the same time. His clothes in this movie are really something else. You know, he's wearing like either a white shirt. He wear, At one point he's, he's stacking melons in this crisp white work shirt. Uh, but most of the time he's either wearing jeans or or brown cords. But the the style in the movies actually it plays a it doesn't play a role but it certainly is eye catching and it's a it's definitely um, it captures a moment in 1974 so I just noticed that a lot of the clothes look like it could be upholstery from a couch or something yeah. thick polyester yeah. you know um, there's some clothes that Renda wears and his his kind of crew all wear ridiculous clothes wear suits oh, almost seem like impossible to wear everyone's always wearing layers like thick polyester shirts with wide ties with then a really thick corduroy jacket on top of it and they're walking around in the sun and like i find it almost uncomfortable like they look incredible but you kind of have the um the working class with with bronson and nancy uh juxtaposed against like the mafia guy and his and his lawyer who are both would belong to sort of a different group but it's like if you're working the if you're working in the fields you were in denim if you're going to shoot someone or you're just lounging around your cabin you're going to wear like this thick polyester that's great another thing i wanted to ask you though is the music at first the first time i i watched this movie i thought oh, this is like porno music or something but <laughs> then i realized the after after subsequent viewings that it's um it's very creative and really tasteful 
Yeah, it's okay. It's not my favorite Bronson music. It's uh, and in fact, I'm gonna go the other way. Uh, on repeated viewings, I actually, I might like it less a little bit. Really? Like it basically all revolves around this one melody that, bum, ba, bum, ba, bum. like that keeps recurring, and I guess it's sort of Majestic's theme. Really, I guess it would. I guess it would be. It appears at all sorts of times. Bum, ba, bum, ba, bum. Yeah, yeah yeah you're right it, it it recurs all through the movie and i just don't like it doesn't feel like mr majestic's character like when i think of all the stuff we're just saying about him he's a working class hero he's down to earth he's hard as nails he's clad as denim he's got this sweet mustache he's throwing looks at the ladies and uh you know he's he's working hard and it's just like like it doesn't it, i don't feel it's a good theme for him or really for the action, like then there's all this action in the movie and it's not really very action oriented. So anyways, I don't know. Sometimes it feels disjointed. There are times when there's a harmonica or there's some wah-wah pedal yeah. that I don't, that I don't like. I, I, and I I'll stand by that, but I think the just categorically harmonicas and yeah, wah-wah well, pedals. I just think it, it, it really dates it to this era. And I don't think that it was done particularly well like i think it's just sort of a vibe that they're throwing in because that's what was popular at the time yeah and there's that whole kind of like earthy folk style harmonica well they're in colorado and there's a sort of like john denverish yeah undercurrent deliverancey kind of you know you want to try to tap into the the zeitgeist of the of that of that moment in that particular place and and create some americana vibe but and i don't really love that but i did like i I mean i guess maybe it's just the whole opening for me really resonated i love the opening the credit visuals the credits look so cool and the music sounds great and it's got some they got some minor chords thrown in and it creates a sense of possibility and tension that that i think worked really well but yeah i won't argue with you too though it does sometimes feel a little bit like it takes you out of the movie yeah some of his movies later on particularly in the 80s when there's you know all the synthesizer and stuff so tense and awesome that it's uh it's just a very different well i think this comes out in 74 i'm i'm no movie music expert but like the composer certainly didn't track to the action back then the way they do now right like now they've got the screen up and they're they're cueing you know every every drum hit is happening exactly where the edit is going to go and it is, is pushing the action along in a certain way. But back in the seventies, it was mostly soundscapes that they would let roll, like kind of regardless of what was happening. And this, and this is like that. Um, There's just kind of music happening. doesn't really propel the action much or heighten the romance or build the tension too much. But I, I agree with you. I think it works best in the opening credits. I might also be biased because so Charles Bernstein is the name of the composer and um, he also did Seawolf and yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. Yeah. Those are some strange bedfellows too. Like as Bronson <laughs> movies go, Mr. Majestic Seawolf and uh, yes, Virginia. And he did Nightmare on Elm Street and a couple other movies too in the, in the eighties. Yeah. But I guess maybe it's time for us to get into some of the, the substance of the film and just for, for our listeners, all of our episodes are going to feature a segment where we, we delve a little bit further into um, what, these, what these movies are about. Certainly, um, 
I'm not going to like twist myself in knots trying to find a deep meaning in each of Bronson's movies. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> the takeaway could just be like the vibe of it or, or something like that. So, uh, but I try to, you know, trying to find a pattern in there, something, something interesting to discuss that maybe other people ha hasn't already been said about this movie. The substance, substance, according to Nick and Ray. So yeah, the, you know, so this is the substance. Um, so my kind of big idea is that uh, it's really interesting to, to juxtapose Majestic with Death Wish. Uh, because you know they're released nearly simultaneously and death wish was so confrontational controversial it's basically pro-gun pro-death penalty pro-vigilantism it's pretty misogynist uh there's a lot of villains who are who are you know from economically marginalized communities but majestic is fairly liberal and it, it's acknowledging you know some of those racial and socioeconomic differences uh between the film's white characters and the largely uh, Mexican-American laborers, but it doesn't dwell on that at all. Like Bronson owns a large farm, but he's clearly working class, uh, but he's always on the verge of losing everything. Um, he's a Vietnam vet. He did time. Uh, he spends the movie squeezed between the fumbling police force and then the, the white criminals who kind of overestimate themselves. But that's the, that's the extent of the sort of moral um, substance of the movie. And then but it never really dwells in any of it. It's not trying to make any grand points. It's ultimately about the action and the thrill. You're just there to watch an exceptional every man who overcomes every obstacle to get a melon crop in. Yeah. There's no time in the story for a big message. And in fact, there's barely any time for, for a love interest. So <laughs> honestly, I think this movie is just strictly about the action. And it has some of those nice pieces behind it that you can, you can look at and see, but it, it doesn't, try to moralize it never really gets into any sort of philosophical question so that's my that's my idea how about you big ray what do you think yeah i agree well it's it's interesting that you bring some of that stuff up and that in the first episode because alluding to what i said earlier like one of the reasons i find myself drawn to these old movies and especially the movies of bronson if they made this movie today it would be just packed to the gills with moralizing and with like political ideological messaging which is what makes a lot of current movies and tv almost unwatchable you show up and you're constantly lectured about why why you're i don't know why you're probably not a very good person like we can retroactively apply all kinds of lenses to these movies i'm kind of allergic to that at this point there are things in there that you can point to and use some critical lens and imagine what it might have been saying or, or maybe that thing is just sort of there. And I think this movie, like in particular, it's almost aggressively, so it almost pushes back against that idea a little bit in that Bronson, other people will talk about some of these issues. Like Copas is like, you don't hire a lot of whites or something he says to him. But we know he just hires people that can slip melons. Like, like he says as much a bunch of times. Like he's sort of free of any of those kinds of, concerns as a character right in fact like another great example just to agree with you on that is that like when when at the beginning of the movie nancy chavez shows up with her crew of migrant workers there's a definite implication that the gas station guy he's treating them poorly for racist reasons and bronson doesn't 
take him to task necessarily for that. He just takes him to task for being a prick. Yeah. You know, it's not as though Bronson wants to fight a political battle. He's just saying, Hey, in, th- in this moment, your behavior is unacceptable and I'm, <laughs> I'm going to intervene and I'll even take it to physical violence if you're not careful. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to ridicule you and make you look a fool. And yeah. And the fact that Nancy's a good looking lady is, is, is in the mix as well. For That's, him, the, that's yeah. the motivation yeah, yeah. probably. Yeah. 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 No, I think we're both on the same page, but you know, it's uh, it's fun to look back at, at these movies in, in the early 70s and try to imagine, you know, why they made the choices they did. And I think this movie, if you do look at it across the across the street from from Death Wish, um, Death Wish goes in the opposite direction. Like Death Wish is a very uh, moralizing, if not just um, challenging movie where they're trying to get you to think about things and. And I think it's, there's a lot of fun in that too. You know, it would never be made today. could never be made today. And I totally agree with the points you're making that nowadays, if you try to watch a movie like that, it'll just be mired. The the movie makers would never be able to remain silent and just depict some actions and allow the, the viewers to come to conclusions or ideas about those actions, right? They not a Hollywood movie, not a mainstream movie would never get the production money to, to do it. No, they would have to insert a bunch of um, expository scenes where characters discuss the political implications and, and obviously one view would be presented as being superior to the other one. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, but, but anyways, so my, what, my big idea, it's almost a story of four men. You, get, you have Majestic, Renda, and you have Copas. And you have the police uh, chief, the uh, his name is yeah, yeah. the lieutenant, who escapes me right now. Uh, but, but you can watch the movie as really kind of a story of these four, four depictions of kind of how to be a tough guy. Because all four of these characters are tough guys, but they're all tough guys in different ways. And it's like a tough guy movie. And so I think it's interesting to see them what they might have in common with each other. And then also the ways that they're totally different. Like Bronson is our hero and he's quiet. He's, he's reserved. Uh, like he's a bit snarky to people, but he's not cruel in any way. And he's like a, seems like an open guy and he's, you know, but he's super capable and at a moment's notice will just take you out, but he's not a braggart in any way. And you don't even know that about him until you push him too far and then you're you know laying on the hood of your car writhing in pain Uh, (laughs) but then you've got renda who's also a tough guy who's just always talking about he's a tell you like i've killed seven guys i've thrown two off a roof and like you know he's always complaining about any little inconvenience or doing a big show of being in prison one funny thing about him being in prison uh, that have you noticed this? Like even before he dumps the sausage on the floor, he's sitting there smoking. He's just tapping the ash into his eggs. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's not, he's not even gonna touch any of it. He's just like nobody's sitting near me. Like he's just this sort of bravado, and and the clothes are a part of that. And yeah, he yeah. obviously like he's a he's a man of of big appetites. It would appear right. Like he's kind of a big guy, and they talk about how the fridge is stocked with vodka. And, and uh what whatever else bourbon and steaks and stuff yeah, like yeah. so and then you've got him so like him and bronson they're both capable they're getting what they do they could both take somebody out but they they carry themselves in such different ways and then copas 
is this kind of like this wormy guy who wants to be Renda, right? Like he wants to grow up and be Renda. Like he's trying to become this kind of strong arm guy in town and he's going to extort, you know, 20% or something off these melon farmers and by forcing them to let uh, his busload of winos work in the field or whatever, right? <laughs> like all this kind of stuff. And But he's just no good at it. He doesn't have the physical presence. He doesn't have the know-how and the history and the training. He's just all talk. Yeah, he's uh, he doesn't have the ruthlessness either. Like at the end when Lundy gets killed and, and Renda clearly sends Lundy out to get killed, he's very upset by it. And uh, that's the one redeeming moment for him in the yeah. whole movie where he's shown to have a conscience, you know, and, and that's it really explains why he's a failure at being yeah. a bad guy. <laughs> yeah. And in some way, because he kind of exists in a way, I guess, maybe between Bronson and Renda. He's the only character that really has a like an arc of any kind. Well, I guess so does so does uh, Wiley. They're both uh, lesser characters, but they both kind of make decisions in the end. And then you got the lieutenant, who's also a tough guy, but it's kind of supported by his position. I think the lieutenant is is much more of a mirror of the of the Bobby Copas character in that they're both trying to achieve something, and they're not able to really do a good job of it. You know. And I think that's just sort of the movie making fun of the local police force who are just a, a disaster throughout the whole movie. Like they're not able to get anything going, you know, <laughs> I guess in a way he, and he sort of like recruits uh, Bronson's character. Like in the end, they have to kind of, the police don't, don't seem capable of catching Renda without kind of letting the thing with Bronson run its course. So they sort of use him as bait. And then Copas, he wants to take Bronson out, but he knows he can't. So he kind of like tags along Randa like a lap dog. Can I put a couple slugs in him when you're done? He says, which is just so ridiculous. And even Renda is just like, who, who is this guy? Those are some really funny scenes where he's, where Copas is just sort of like around Renda and trying to impress him. And Renda has no time for Copas. And then they just leave him on the side of the road. Those scenes are so funny. They are. And, uh, and, and Wiley's character, you know, that character really makes those scenes great too, because she's just kind of laughing at, at Copas, and you can see she has this attraction to Renda for his brutality. You know, there's a lot of nuance there in those very subtle acting jobs by Lee Purcell. I thought she did a really good job. She's a really very magnetic performer in this movie and and has a has a quality that's sort of unexpected that really kind of carries some of those scenes. Her character is really interesting. I thought about a lot about it while I was watching this time. Just why is she with him? And it seems like she's she's a highly educated kind of well-to-do young woman, but she's portrayed almost as she has this twisted attraction to being around this murderer. That's funny because the actor doesn't carry herself in a way that would lend lend you to think that in this film. One one funny thing, like I had mentioned to you when we weren't recording that I, I picked this up on Blu-ray and I was watching it and seeing some little details. One thing I never noticed... I'm sure when they're driving in the car, she's reading a book and it really, really looks to me on the Blu-ray in the, that level of detail that she's reading the Bible. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it, it like, it, could you see that on the copy you were reading? Like, I couldn't quite make out what it's no. on the cover, but it looks like she's reading the Bible. I read that. Oh, I read really? That she, yeah, I read that it was Purcell's idea to have the Bible be the prop. 
Oh, wow. That's interesting. I I had never heard that. I just noticed it yesterday when I was watching it again. And it was just like, how does that fit? Like, it's a really strange, just adding another bizarre, mysterious layer to her character, I guess. It's a really nice touch to have this complex supporting role. Um, and, you know, that's a good segue because the next segment we, we're going to talk about in every episode is, is the action. So this is an action movie. It's awesome. It's one of the reasons why we love it so much. Uh, it's one of the best action movies of the 70s in my mind. And one of the big reasons for that, obviously, is the, the car chase scene. But there's a lot of action in this movie and some, some pretty subtle scenes that are very memorable. Obviously, I mean, the car chase speaks for itself. There's great scenes when he's, he's in the back of the truck bouncing around. And he kicks the, the door in and he, he shoots the, through the windshield of the car chasing them. Oh, yeah. It's... And the like the angles at which that truck is taking jumps and then smashing down back into the ground. <laughs> like anyone who is actually in that truck, like their back would just be oh, messed for so they'd go right to the windshield, man. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's pretty insane the beating that that truck takes. Yeah, I love it. I love that. I love that truck chase. This is one of those movies that comes out right at the time where you had to have a car chase, right? Like this was French Connection, Bullet like this although it's a truck it's a little bit different but that was like the signature uh, moment in kind of an early yeah. 70s action movie and they were always trying to one-up the other ones i think they were getting wilder and longer and this is just around opec oil crisis so the cars are still gigantic like just massive sedans it's yeah. really entertaining to watch them that's why they can't take those jumps because the cars are like 40 feet long and there's no like <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah it's yeah. pretty wild another another great scene in this movie is the it's just it's so ridiculous and that's when the the bad guys find majestic stash of 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 watermelons and they just unload, you know, for two minutes straight, just shooting automatic weapons into these watermelons. You know, he said all he wanted was to get his melons in. Get the man's melons in. You heard him. Get the melons in. Go ahead. It's iconic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Melon Massacre is such an original, interesting scene. I think, well, it's not, a, well, it's not exactly an action scene. I guess it is, but in a way. But I think this gets overlooked. Like, this is a moment that should make it into all of those, like, Academy Award, 100 years of movies, like, montages. You know, like, a, you know, I'm going to make him an offer he couldn't refuse. And then, like, Hal from 2001 saying whatever he says and like you know all those moments like like the melon murder has to be in there like it's i think it's a, one of the greatest movie moments of the 70s like the head in the bed and the godfather or whatever like the horse head yeah like it totally deserves way more recognition than it gets it should be a moment that everyone knows 
Yeah, it's genius. And then the, finally, of course, another just wonderful action sequence is the end of the movie is really great. And, but the thing I like about it, um, you know, the, the whole ending sh- shootout, it's super subdued and kind of modest. You know, it's like the whole movie itself. Like uh, it gets to the point, but it takes a bit of time to get there. It's not, there's no explosions or anything. It's very, very relaxed kind of um, uh, shootout at the end of the movie. I loved it. And then, and then Bronson, of course, dives through the window, right? Yeah. And that, that's the, that would be the big moment. And again, that's the seventies at work right there. Like maybe you'd get one big explosion, but these are movies made on modest budgets. And so the interest comes from, okay, where is it going to be? It's going to be in this cabin in the woods. What are some interesting angles we can use? Renda's going to come out on the roof and, you know, like they, they try to make it as visually interesting and suspenseful as they can. But nobody's like swinging from cranes or like, no. you know, like the kinds of stuff that we would see if they were to remake this today. Yeah, there'd be drone footage and all kinds of stuff. Right? <laughs> yeah, or, or he'd be hanging from a drone you know yeah. like leaping yeah. from the roof onto a drone yeah and then yeah renda would use a drone to, to get him yeah all that nonsense yeah well you know this is a good a good segue too into the the co-stars and the and the creators um i always love looking at imdb or wikipedia or, or like trying to find books about um about bronson and about these movies and this one, there's a lot of review. There's a lot of reviews written after the fact. You can find tons of reviews about about the movie. There's not a lot of biographic material about it, but I found a little a little bit of this quite interesting. So, you know, some of the other co-stars, Paul Coslow plays Bobby Copas. He was raised in Saskatchewan in Canada, which is kind of neat. Um, he's in a, a, in a few movies with Bronson. Al Lettieri, of course, uh, who plays Frank Renda. He was in The Godfather. And uh, something I didn't realize is, is that the reason why he you didn't see much more of him after this is because he died literally a year after the film's release, unfortunately. So I really liked Al Lettieri too. I thought he brought a real power to that role and was um, yeah a different dimension than maybe somebody else might have brought to it. He's he's good. Like just the, yeah, he's just a big windbag really like just always barking at everybody around him and threatening and uh, he does a great job uh with it and it's just sort of mustache versus mustache in this movie too like they needed somebody who could carry who could bring a mustache <laughs> um a couple other just noteworthy points here Lee Purcell so who plays Wiley um I found out that she did a bunch of NRA videos in the eighties that were, you know, teaching people about the importance of how to use, how to use guns and how to keep them in your house safely, which is, uh, you know, and, and it's funny because a lot of Bronson's co-stars over the years end up, end up in those uh, NRA movies or, or documentaries. Really? Yeah. There's a few that I'm, I'm looking at, you know, who, who end up in the NRA's, um, propaganda okay sounds good so another person that this is this is something i really like to do and i'm going to try to do this as well in in future episodes is just look at some of the the supporting characters that you might notice but you might not really know who they are and they have just extraordinary careers right behind them so someone who's really just pretty exceptional is richard erdman who plays renda's lawyer and he's just got a walk-on scene he's in maybe less than a minute in the whole movie Richard Erdman, um, he was in that show Community. I don't know if you ever saw that, but he, he's in his 90s in that show. So he's in that. Uh, he had his career span from 1944 to 2017. 
So just a huge, like Bronson's career is pretty extraordinary because it went from basically 51, 52 until whatever, 1999 or something. Right. But this guy did even more than that. He was in uh Torah, Torah, Torah. Um, and he's also in, you're in the Navy now, which was Bronson's first movie. Oh, wow. was Charles Baczynski back in 51. Yeah. And this guy, I swear, man, he's in literally every TV show from the early fifties until just a few years ago. Like he's in, you should look at stat sheet. Richard Erdman is someone worth looking into. And then another person that I found kind of interesting is James Reynolds. So that's the guy in the holding cell with Bronson, who he's talking to when, when Renda throws his food on the floor. And he says, the guy who says, do you know who that is? Yeah. Yeah. That guy, yeah. Yeah. So he he was actually he went on in a, in the early eighties, maybe eighty eighty one. He started into Days of Our Lives, and he's been on that for forty years. So he's he's still on it. Yeah, and he won a daytime Emmy, I think, in twenty sixteen for his character on that on that show. So that's a show I've never seen, but you know, this guy James Reynolds, his starting his starting point was uh, majestic. Oh, nice. Yeah, and the only other thing I, I have of note here is that. Um, you know, I, I, for fun, I just was looking through the cast and crew and aside from, uh, Chavez and, and, um, Lee Purcell, um, there's only two women in the entire cat crew, right? There's, there's, oh, uh, sure, sure. yeah, there's a hairdresser and there's a costume designer. So yeah. needless to say, you know, it's, it's, you're getting a very, a very male, very manly film here from the early seventies, which is, Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. It makes, I mean, it doesn't make any apologies for it either, but just, uh, just something to note. No, I don't too. I, think too, I don't think too many people are coming away from Miss, Mr. Majestic having sought it out and watched it. Right. feeling that it felt like it could have used uh, more of a woman's touch <laughs> no no i don't think that that's a slight it's just a, an interesting point <laughs> so let's uh you know every episode two we're going to get into the sometimes there's a book associated with with the movie um in this case there certainly was and ray's going to take us through bronson's book corner you're about to be backed into bronson's book corner All right, so uh, yeah, the the book, the novel by Elmore Leonard, Mr. Majestic, and Elmore Leonard penning the movie as well. He kind of does them both at once, which is a bit of an oddity. Uh, there's not often, uh, like the 70s were the golden age, I think, of movie novelizations. Practically every movie, you could find a novelization that some, they would, you know, farm it out to somebody to just turn it into a novel. And I love these. I love these things. I love movie novelizations. But this one is written by, you know, the same guy writing the, the movie. So they're sort of written concurrently. And so it reads almost identical to the movie. Like the dialogue in the book is practically the dialogue in the movie. Although there are a bunch of additional things, some some funny things. Like, for example, the incident at the bathroom right at the start of the movie is really drawn out in the book. And it's structured in kind of a funny way. The gas station attendant keeps saying things like, they can't come in here. And then Bronson will just tell them that he said something else. So the guy will say, like, they can't come in here. And Bronson will turn to the workers and say, he said, come on in. And the guy will be like, no, my boss doesn't let them. He says, yeah, he says you can use the washroom. And the guy's like, what are you doing? And it goes on for quite a number of pages where Bronson's just needling the guy even more than he does in the movie. That's great. So you get lots of that kind of stuff. Everything's pretty much the same, only more so. Another interesting thing about this is, you know, if you're a Bronson book collector like myself, 
which you probably are if you're listening to this. You know, you like to seek out a good hardcover, but you're not going to find that of this because the first edition of this book is actually the movie tie-in, which is a strange um, byproduct of it being written by the guy who wrote the movie. So if you find the paperback, you're also going to find a first edition uh, that you can uh, slot in your collection. So this is definitely a this is definitely a must-have. I think uh, not all Bronson books are but this one you can pick this up you're on the plane or whatever it's it's just like watching the movie but there's one last thing i wanted to say about it the the back of this book like if you were just pick it off the spinner rack and read the oh what's this book about the impression you would get it is so misleading like just it you get a picture of bronson in denim and in bold red type on the back of the book it says killer man like that's your introduction, which knowing the movie bears very little resemblance to anything we see. And then, and then it says this, it says majestic had his belly full of killing in Asia. It was his job and he was one of the best, but when he, when he stripped off his uniform, he never wanted to go back to it. That was why he was a melon farmer now out where no one knew about his past. Like that whole intro is barely referenced it's there's maybe one line in the movie that alludes to any of that yeah in fact i don't remember them mentioning vietnam or like maybe they mentioned it once when he's in jail right they the guys and they have him in the office want a purple heart or have yeah. a golden cross whatever it is they pull his file and there's literally like two lines of dialogue and say he taught i think he taught at nice. fort bragg knox or, or something or yeah fort yeah knox yeah, he was, <laughs> yeah, he was teaching bayonet uh, technique at Fort Knox. By reading the back of the book, you'd think this was much more like Rambo or something, but it's but obviously it, there's not a lot of that. We don't see him pulling out many army specific skills in the final fight or anything like that. You know, he's not laying traps, <laughs> running wire in the woods, <laughs> like digging digging like punji pits or whatever. Right. He doesn't do any of that. Munitions, yeah, no. Yeah, trip wires. <laughs> but in any case, just to just to wrap up, I would definitely suggest. I don't think this is a rare book. Uh, you know, you're going to be able to dig one of these up or find it online for for not too expensive. Um, that's it for the Bronson's Book Corner for today, and uh, we're going to move on to the review roundup. Are we not, Nick? Yeah, you know what? The reviews of this movie are almost all positive, so it's pretty tough for us to get a balanced kind of uh, perspective on it. Like everybody loves this movie yeah it's universally you don't see much lower than a seven um i was able to dig up a two out of ten here from 2002 so this is um a, a review by mm 3630 uh in may of 2002 and uh you know we're gonna try to do with every every okay. film we review is just you know like you can take it from us but we're gonna try to get you some some um some of the words written by people who took the time to review these online somewhere. So starting around 2000, 2002, you can find tons of reviews of, of this film and, and many other Bronson movies. So here, here's uh, MM3930. The Review Roundup. Well, I rented this film with my girlfriend and dad. I thought this film would be cool. This is one of those 70s films with a social message, like Stigall or Stiegel on, on Stiegel's On Deadly Ground and others. Seagal? Like Steven Seagal? Is that what he means? Steven Seagal on Deadly Ground? Is that what you said? Yeah, on yeah, Deadly Ground. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah, okay, good. Mil Milt Stiegel? 
I thought it was Steven Seagal. I didn't think it was Steven Stigall. It's not. No. The, so the guys, yeah. the guys miss, uh, the guys misspelling Steven Seagal. His grammar is not great. I his use of punctuation too. Yeah, anyway, but yeah. let's just we'll, we'll 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 give him the we'll give him or her the benefit of the doubt. Them. This film has a message and no story. What one sees in this film is one people shooting melons. That has to be a film first. Two Fact. Charlie talking a lot, which is not true. And then three, a bad guy who's one of the dumbest in action history with half the FBI looking for him. He stays in the area to hunt Charlie. The only good part was during the gunfight. Bronson says, let's get this over with. I got work to do. Don't rent. Watch on late night TV. Leave this dog alone. Two out of ten. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny that you pointed out how this movie is sort of all plot, no message. And somehow in this guy saw a movie with a, a message, a social message and no plot. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what he feels the social message I don't know. of this movie is. Yeah. I don't really, maybe I don't it's, really know. Maybe it's Nancy Chavez or something. I don't know. Maybe That's I, pretty loose though. That's I think just... it's funny that he uh, uh, sets his sights on Renda as the dumbest villain. I think it is funny. I think it's a funny part of his character. I think it's pulled off relatively well. Like he clearly doesn't have his best interests in mind. He should get out of town and go hide. He says he can on a number of occasions, but he does stick around. It's because he's driven so insane by. It's his ego. His ego is so huge. And he's so infuriated that uh, Bronson's one upped him so completely. So completely. He he becomes reckless. He sees himself as the alpha in any room and he's just so outclassed by Bronson just like without even any effort like it's just Bronson just dwarfs him in every sense in in terms of being cool and powerful and just owning every situation and it drives Renda absolutely crazy and he sort of snaps and that's why he just has to kill this melon farmer And and he never succeeds and he doesn't recognize that his his own folly until the very very end you know and even then it's hard to say whether he actually he grasps that he's just completely outclassed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, what did you see any uh, any good reviews on there? Oh, I don't have one in front of me. Oh, that's okay. Well, let's just leave it at that one then. Yeah. Let's just say that um, this was really the only truly negative review I could find. There's just nothing. Like people love this movie, so um, if you want to check out more reviews, it's really easy to find them on the internet. I, there's some, if you look for like the New York Times review, there there are some some subtle digs at the movie being a little bit uh, lesser than, let's say, like an art house movie. Obviously, it's not supposed to be that. As an action movie, though, I think it really it, it achieves its main goals and and does so in style. So you're not going to find too many bad reviews. So, you know, every movie that we review, we'll, we'll do a rating and we're going to try to find something from the movie that we can use as a, as a rating marker. And in this movie, clearly we have to use melons. So I'm going to ask you, Ray, how many, how many melons out of 10? How many melons out of 10? Nick, I've watched this movie a lot, like six times or something in the past, however many months or, you know, you know, through the pandemic here. And even the most recent time yesterday, I do not tire of this movie. And I find new things that are funny in it and new things that are great about the action in it. I got to give this nine melons out of 10. Me too. Yeah. Nine out of 10 melons. Yeah. And, and I'm for the exact same reasons you just talked about. Like I've seen this movie. I saw this movie in high school. 
I read the book and then I saw the movie again every few years and it's still great. I watched it again for, for today, you know, and I just loved it. I loved every minute of it. It's just such a great film. I think it has a lot of rewatchability. I think because it's simple and like it doesn't, there's no surprises that are required, right? You know what I mean? Like when you watch it the first time and then it's ruined for subsequent times, like this is a really well crafted movie of Bronson going around <laughs> taking people out. Yeah. It just holds up time. And again, you can just put it on when you're just like, I wish I watched tonight. Okay. I'll throw in Mr. Majestic. You're not going to be disappointed. You're right. So, okay, Nick, what are we going to be having a look at next? Well, man, you know, we, uh, we both got pretty excited about Majestic as being the kind of the starter for the series, but um, another close second for us was the choice of hard times. So obviously mm-hmm. we, we call the show that we're on here at hard times on film for a reason. And that's because hard times is one of the best Bronson movies of all time. Oh, absolutely. So we'll be watching hard times next and uh, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Give you enough time to uh, order up your Blu-ray or uh, head uh, to the deep recesses of the web or however you need to dig up a copy, have yourself a watch of it, and then uh, join us for a little conversation. And everybody, what you're listening to here is Hard Times on Film. My name is Nick. My name's Ray. Hard Times on Film. Y'all don't work here anymore. You got two minutes to get the hell in your car. Get out of here, son. Damn, you're talking, boy. You get your head off.